If you closed your Bible, would you open it again, please, to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Somewhere years ago, I read of Spurgeon's visit to Trinity College, Cambridge. And uh, Spurgeon, of course, was the well-known, very famous British-English preacher in London in the 19th century. As he was shown through the library of this great college, part of a university, he stopped to admire the bust of Lord Byron, who lived in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the famous English poet. The librarian asked him to stand on one side and to view the bust from a particular angle. Taking the indicated position, he remarked, what a genius. There was something about that side of his face uh, that produced that reaction in him. Then the librarian had him look at the same bust from a different angle from the other side. And Spurgeon now replied, what a demon. The sculptor had captured um, the two sides, or at least two sides of Lord Byron. He had captured the the great uh, and also the not so great, perhaps even the sinful. Now, as you undoubtedly know, there often are two sides to every issue, which often causes arguments um, between well-meaning friends. But sometimes a matter may be looked at differently, and we may look at a particular situation differently. And that's exactly what Paul introduces here. Paul is interested in giving his readers, who are the brothers, meaning they're Christians, those whom Paul has already mentioned um, at least twice or in two different settings, they're saints, um, uh, for one thing, and then Paul is able to thank God for them in verses 3 and following. So they're dear to him, they're precious to him, He was there when the church, when the gospel was preached and the church was established. And so he's eager to give his readers another perspective on what would be to them an all-absorbing problem. Paul begins by saying, now I want you to know this, which is code for this is really, really important. And what makes it important? Well, it's important because Paul is in prison. And they need some instruction and they need some help to understand this. If they had their way, Paul would be released. And probably if Paul had his way, he'd rather be out of prison as well. The tendency, though, for his readers 
those who are intimately connected to him or related to him in the bonds of Christ, to draw several conclusions, and all of them negative. First of all, they would recognize that this brings discomfort to Paul. Um, He's suffering. Um, He's in a miserable jail, and um, they care for him. And they would rather that he be in a, in a warm hotel or somebody's warm home or something. But it's discomfort. I'm sure the food wasn't that great. It's cold, it's damp, it's dark, and all of the rest. And then secondly, they would undoubtedly conclude that this was a disadvantage for the gospel. That is, who's going to hear Paul while he's in prison? Prisoners, perhaps. Um, And who's going to uh, take issue with those who are preaching either a different gospel or preaching the true gospel, but out of envy and jealousy? And it also means, thirdly, discouragement for the believers. If Paul could be imprisoned, why not they? After all, he's imprisoned because he's a Christian And because he's interested in promoting the gospel, and he does so formally, but whether one is a preacher or not, believers are interested in promoting the gospel. What happened to him could happen to them as well. So all of this is negative. There's nothing positive at all about this, and undoubtedly they're grieving over his imprisonment. But Paul looks at it differently. And that's what we need to see in verses 12 through 18 because that's exactly what Paul is presenting here. We're given a window into his experience, the fact that he's in prison and the fact that that there are those using that to their advantage. He's in prison. And so we're giving a window into his experience but also into his mind and to how he thinks and to how he processes this. And in that sense, it's helpful for us as we experience the various difficulties of of life and are tempted to raise the question, this is terrible. Nothing good can come out of this. And we hope for some kind of deliverance. So there are three questions that Paul asks or has them ask and three questions uh, that we ought to be asking as well as we think of the difficulties, the imprisonments of life as it were. So the first question is this, does my experience advance the interests of the gospel? In that verses 12 and 13. Now I would not have, I would have you know, brethren, in other words, this is important, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the progress of the gospel, so that my bonds became manifest in Christ through the whole Praetorian God and uh, guard and to all the rest. Now again, Paul was in prison. 
But apart from revealing that, Paul does nothing to satisfy our curiosity about that. In other words, we don't know anything about the prison. We do through um, historical records and, and those sorts of things. But Paul doesn't dwell on that and the discomfort and the unfortunate set of circumstances. He, he does nothing to satisfy our curiosity. How is, he, how is he making his way? How well is he making his way in prison? We want to know the details. We would want to know the extent of his suffering. Paul isn't interested in telling us that. He wants us to know, and his readers, something else. The specifics are not worth the telling because there's something far more significant. Paul sees his imprisonment as an opportunity. Paul sees his difficulty as an opportunity. Paul sees his difficulty as the means to promote the gospel. This is to the advantage of the gospel. The word that Paul uses here is a metaphorical word. Uh, and it refers to or it pictures engineers uh, cutting away through the wilderness uh, in order uh, to make way for an army. Many of you know that my father spent um, almost 20 years in Alaska in the mining industry in the 1930s and 1940s. And uh, in the day, to get from Seattle, which was the launching pad, uh, you had to take a boat. And most of the cruise ships now follow the, follow the, 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 the particular uh, way that the that, the, that those uh, boats did through the inside passage and out into the ocean and then up to Seward and to Anchorage. But, you could, but that's the only way you could go in the day. There were no roads. You could not drive from Seattle through Canada, through southeastern Alaska. In fact, you can't today in, in certain parts of Alaska as well. And it wasn't until the Second World War that a, a road was actually cut through to Alaska. It's called the Alcan Highway. It's still there. Got to be careful. Carry some extra tires with you. It's pretty rough, I understand. So now you can drive, but you couldn't in the day. So engineers had to uh, organize and, well, engineer uh, that roadway. And I've seen pictures of of how difficult it was for the equipment to get in there, but they needed to get equipment for the army, for the war effort, and the only way to do that was to build a road. And so Paul uses that kind of a language. Here is a road. Here is the means. Here is an advantage for the gospel. Paul is saying that great numbers of people heard the gospel who would never have heard the gospel before. Or otherwise, probably not hear the gospel. The whole Praetorian Guard. 
Perhaps it's a reference to the barracks of the elite guard of the Roman Empire. Some have suggested that rather than that, it was uh, the residence of the Roman governor. If Paul was in Rome, then perhaps this is the This is the reference. Paul was chained to a guard. So there's several different um, places Paul might have been. But the point is that the gospel was heard in the highest places in society. By the guard itself, by the governor of a Roman province, or perhaps in the very city itself. And they might never have heard the gospel apart from his imprisonment. Paul is saying to us here that life situations create the opportunity for us to speak about Christ. Now that doesn't mean that all of life's experiences are comfortable, enjoyable, desirable, but before we bewail our set of circumstances, we would do well to ask ourselves the question, does this put me in a place, does this give me an opportunity to speak for Christ? Now, I've read, and perhaps you have as well, of individuals who were arrested for crimes, and they were sentenced to prison. And when they were in prison, they came to faith in Christ and could use that as an occasion to speak for Christ. And there was no one else around, perhaps, that could do the same. The point Paul is making is that you take Christ with you wherever you go. You go into the hospital because you're sick and you bemoan the fact and no one wants to see you or anyone else in a hospital, but it happens. But you take Christ with you. You could only serve the gospel. Often you can only serve the gospel if you suffer for him It's clear that Paul was on trial for Christ and not for personal crimes that he has committed. The world is a place of trouble and difficulty and and believers are often uh, attacked because of their faith. And then we're put in circumstances providentially that are negative, or at least we conclude their negative. Things may look bleak, but have you ever thought that perhaps this is the best of all places for you at the moment to speak for Christ? Joseph was cast into a pit. Life is over. Nothing more to look forward to, yet he's taken out of the pit, he's taken to Egypt. And he becomes a person of singular importance and exercises his influence. 
Most of us probably have read to great prophet John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great little book and it's one of those that, that I turn to every few years and, and reread. It's, it's so telling, so expressive, just, just a marvelous little book. Where, where was John Bunyan when he wrote that? He was in Bedford Prison. We wouldn't have it probably if it weren't for his imprisonment. And so whatever happens to us and wherever we are and whatever circumstances we find ourselves, Paul would suggest that we ought to ask ourselves the question, will someone hear about Christ because of where I am? You don't like your job, can't get out of it, but will someone hear about Christ where you are? The hospital, all kinds of illustrations. Secondly, not only um, will I have an influence for Christ in my unusual set of circumstances, but secondly, does my experience encourage the brethren? Verse 14, uh, where Paul says that, that because of his bonds, the whole Praetorian Guard hears, verse 14, and that most of the brethren in the Lord, being confident through my bonds, are more abundantly bold to speak the word of God without fear. So Paul's experience had the effect of emboldening Christians to live more faithfully and to perhaps speak more openly. Paul's experience inspired them to live confidently and courageously. Paul is in prison. Paul is having a difficult time. However, I'm in this set of circumstances, and if Paul could live that way, so can I. If Paul is called to live as a Christian in difficult circumstances, and so am I, or then so am I in mine at this time. They observed how Paul responded to fire, as it were. And most had their confidence renewed in in the power of the gospel. They conclude that it was possible to remain firm. Look at Paul over here. He's firm. He's not wavering. He's not throwing in the towel, as it were. He remains firm and faithful. They were watching him. And dear ones, people are watching you through your experience of trial or loss, whatever it might be. Much is at stake. The question here is, is God's grace sufficient? Is God's grace sufficient for John Bunyan in prison? Is, John, is, is God's grace sufficient for those who are suffering as Christians in, in various parts of the world? And I look at some of our friends and that Caribbean country to which I return two and three times a year, and I and I and I look at them, and I see what they what they must endure, 
from all sorts of circumstances and settings, politically, um, in terms of what they don't have and can't have because it's just not even available. And I, and I think, well, if they can do that, why can't I do that? I mean, if they can live that way, why can't I, with all of the greater resources that I have, remain firm? Is God's grace sufficient? And my response to a situation, your response to a situation is telling. It says something, even if you're not speaking any words. Bishop Ridley, in the 16th century, wrote to John Bradford concerning his reaction to the death of John Rogers, the first Protestant martyr in Mary's bloody reign. And he said this, I thank our Lord God that since I heard of our dear brother Rogers departing and stout confessing of Christ, my heart rejoiced of it. Neither ever since that time have I felt any lumpish heaviness as I grant I have felt sometimes before heaviness because of the days of persecution. In other words, if John Rogers could live that way, so can I. And in fact, Bishop Ridley did have to live that way. Generally, our view of encouragement is on the superficial side, patting each other uh, perhaps on the back. But one of the benefits of fellowship is to see others, people are watching. And what do they see? So Paul's experience inspired them to live confidently and courageously. Secondly, Paul's experience inspired them to preach daringly. Confident preaching inspires confident living, but it also inspires confident preaching. Where there is a a congregation, a church, that listens intently and conforms to the things of God, it actually inspires the preaching. It's it, the preacher, it's, it's inspiring, it's encouraging. It, it makes him want to enter the pulpit and preach again. Where there is nothing but deadness, the preacher may enter the pulpit and feel <clears throat> it's not really worth the effort, regardless of the size of the congregation, where there's vitality, where there's true Christian living. The preacher encourages confidence and the congregation encourages confidence as well. Three different words are used in the context for preaching. Telling the gospel was central for Paul. Now, thirdly and finally, does my experience really matter? Does my experience really matter? Paul had a problem. Paul did have a problem. And the problem was that there were those who were 
preaching. And they were preaching not a false gospel at this point, that there were those doing that too, but they were preaching the gospel out of envy. Um, sadly, there are those who preach in the interest of, um, of kind of gaining one up, upmanship over, over others. It's kind of a competition in their thinking and in their mind. And so there are those who are preaching and they're preaching it faithfully and they're preaching it out of love. And then there are others who are preaching it out of, of envy and pride and seeking to advance themselves more than the gospel. We've seen that recently uh, in Cuba with a, a minor split. And in my judgment, the well, I shouldn't even put it that way, but the observation is on the part of many is that that the issue is one of, of pride and of envy, thinking that they're more reformed than everybody else. And sometimes some people are more reformed than others, but that's not what's going on there. And so some brothers are envious, they're jealous, they're, they're factious, they're divisive. Verse 17 speaks of... of, of Selfish ambition. They possessed a triumphalist mentality. They were competitive and combative. Somebody must win. And somebody must lose. And they took advantage of the situation. Paul's in prison so they can promote this and themselves more than they ever did before. They hope to advance themselves at Paul's expense. And it happens in a great many ways, some of them more minor than others, some of them more subtle than others, but it happens all the time, sadly. And so Paul calls their motives into question or their, their motives are called into question by the apostle Paul. It's not their orthodoxy that's called into question. There are places where that is the case. They thought they could add to Paul's tribulation the pressure that he was under by their preaching. Knowing that it will hurt him. And also knowing that he would want them to keep preaching anyway. So what does Paul intend to do to resolve this issue. When there's a conflict, you want to see it resolved. So what does Paul try to do? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's a time to do something and there's a time not to do anything at all. Some people insist on their own way. They're abrupt, they run roughshod over others, self-absorbed, must be first, they're headstrong. And what do you do? Rise above it. Don't engage them at that level. It doesn't have to be addressed. They're still preaching the gospel. 
They may be envious. There may be issues there. But the gospel is what really matters. Does my experience really matter at all? Does my experience matter even if I am the object of some abuse? Paul shows a tolerance not born of indifference. Paul felt the way any of us might feel in a set of circumstances like that. Paul shows a tolerance not born of indifference, but of a burning zeal for Christ. Some issues having to do with personal matters are not worth pursuing if Christ is preached and Christ is exalted even through our imprisonment, as it were, or sad experience. Paul refuses to allow the clatter and clamor of others to cloud his joy. Now the point I think that Paul is making throughout here is that there are a number of things that happen in life that at the end of the day and cast in the best possible perspective really don't matter. And I don't mean to be unkind, uh, certainly, uh, or to feel as if I'm indifferent to whatever you might be going through. But what matters most? You or Christ? Your experiences, even the really difficult ones, again, not to be indifferent or insensitive, because some of God's people go through really trying, trying, trying experiences. So not, not to be indifferent to that or insensitive to that, but, but putting it on a scale, what matters most? We, ourselves, or Christ? And the proclamation of the gospel and the extension of the kingdom of God. What matters more then what happens to us is the way we look at what happens to us and what may be the result of what happens to us. A poet once wrote, two men looked through the same bars, one sees mud and the other stars. And that's really what Paul is talking about Matthew Henry wrote a strange chemistry of providence this to extract so great a good as the enlargement of the gospel out of so great an an evil 
as the confinement of the apostle. And again, what Paul is really saying here is what matters most are not the circumstances, but the way we view the circumstances and how they relate to Christian experience and the advancement of the gospel. If Christ is honored and Christ is glorified, at the end of the day, isn't that truly what really, really matters? May God give us grace to view our lives that way. Let's pray. Father, we do turn to you again at the close of this sermon, a sermon that in many ways is hard to preach and hard to understand and even hardest of all to apply. Nevertheless, we pray that we may understand it and by your grace know what it is to live as the apostle did. He, by the grace of God, we too, by that same grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.